This is the Payback Time Podcast, where we interview driven individuals who have achieved or are well on their way to achieving financial freedom. We break down the steps required to generate leveraged income, including but not limited to stock investing, online business, traditional business, and real estate. Each episode breaks down the mistakes made, victories achieved, and the overall journey that led them to where they are today. Sean Tepper is your host, and here is today's episode. Imagine spending $100 million on a project with uncertainty you'll ever make your money back. Welcome to the world of real estate development. My next guest has been a real estate developer for over 20 years. This industry is most definitely not for the faint of heart. From the outside looking in, the risk to reward ratio is far off balance and would cause most people to pass out from sheer anxiety. He started his career on the front line as an electrician. He then went to school to learn the entire real estate development process. Thereafter, he worked for several developers as a project manager, learning what he would call the entire cradle-to-grave life cycle. Then, at age 32, he branched away and started his own company, and now today, his specialty is residential properties. If you want to get an idea of what real estate development looks like, this episode is for you. Please welcome Scott Choppin. Scott, how you doing? Good, Sean. Great to be here. Appreciate the invite. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. So if you would go ahead, kick us off and give us your career backstory. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I uh, come from a real estate background, real estate development family background. So my, my dad, Carrie, and my uncle Mike were both real estate developers in their own right, um, predominantly in the commercial office development space, and then both did a, a ton of apartment buildings, develop, you know, develop new construction apartment buildings. So that really informed my, my, my early years, you know, like, you know, younger years from, you know, like say 12 to 18, you know, I was around that. I wasn't necessarily, you know, working in the business, but, you know, I got to have some exposure and sort of understand generally what real estate developers did. But I, I will be honest with you. I wasn't really like necessarily after having that be a career. Uh, it's not your normal career and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I like, that's not a bad thing. It's just like, you don't have the career counselor in high school saying, Hey, go be a real estate developer. It's like, that you know, happens just, never. It yeah, happens never. That's right. Exactly. No <laughs> books in the library about how to be a real estate developer. Right. He said I can find, uh, and I left by the way. Um, so I, I spent a couple of years after high school, really, I worked in the construction trades. Um, that was sort of just a, a move to make, to, you know, make some money. I was, you know, like I'm a Gen Xer and like I was ready to move out of my dad's house. I lived with my dad in my teenage years. Um, I was ready to go. <laughs> 17, I was like mm -hmm. out of there, right? And that put, you know, throws you into, you know, having to make money and, and survive, mm -hmm. and, you know, put gas in the car and do all those things that, uh, you know, adults have to do. And so I worked as an electrician for a couple of years. And uh, that, that taught me a couple of things. One is that uh, it wasn't what I wanted to do long run. Like I could just tell that one, it wasn't going to necessarily be challenging enough for me. Like I just felt like, okay, I learned, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the world's greatest electrician, but I was, you know, I was pretty good at it. Um, sure. But I also interpreted that I got, oh, there's got to be more to life than this. Um, I could see people who I worked with were going to get worn out, right? Construction just does that to you. Good, good, you know, salt of the earth people, good people, like, you know, no, no complaints about it. 
Um, and then, you know, I just sort of observed that as like I was sort of dissatisfied and knew that this wasn't what I wanted to do, that I started to look for what I did want to do. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think you and I talked about this when we talked before. It's like I, working on construction sites. In fact, I was an electrician on apartment building sites almost sure. exclusively. In fact, I think, you know, like 98%. I recognize who the developer of the apartment buildings was like he'd drive up and, you know, in my world, it was a, he at the time, nice car wearing the suit and tie clearly, you know, was in, you know, was a leader was, you know, and, you know, commanding the space. Right. Mm-hmm. And I go, Oh, like I knew who that person was because of my family background. I go, oh, I want to be that guy. Right. Like I finally dawned on me. Oh, this is what, you know, my dad and my uncle, who they are. And, you know, of course, I didn't have yep. the whole story of all the risks that you take and all the, all the, you know, challenges that you're put, pushed into to, to do that. But I've, at that point, identified, I go, okay, I want to, I want to be a real estate developer. I want to work for myself. And then I read a couple books that were pretty instrumental in, mm-hmm. in, you know, thinking about how to, how to be in business, which were, you know, sort of how to invest in real estate on the weekends and make a million dollars, you know, that kind of thing. And those books really taught me, opened my eyes up to deal making, right? Like that was the missing component for me in the context of, I, I could see what real estate developers did, but it's like, what do you do, right? You, yeah, you find land, you build buildings and you lease them, right? The kind of thing, but the, the money making, the mm-hmm. production of profit part, was like missing for me, right? Like yep. in a way that was meaningful to me. Of course, I knew people needed to produce profitable projects, right? Like who wouldn't do that? Mm-hmm. But then what's the challenges and what's the attitude? And really one of the things is like the creativity. Like how can you be creative in the process of producing a new transaction? That could be anything. It doesn't need to be real estate development. It could be deals, real estate deals. It could be business. It could be manufacturing widgets. But it's the idea of, you know, creating a new opportunity, executing on it in a creative problem solving oriented way. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, you've got a a valuable property that, you know, is more valuable than what you expended to produce that, you know, that opportunity. Cool. Um, I really like your story here in the beginning. You're a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm at that borderline between X and millennial. Mm -hmm. Um, And our generations, our parents really um, introduced us to or encouraged us especially in my family, to go to college, get a four-year degree, you know, and, and you're probably seeing this today's day and age. We have a, a shortage of contractors, like we're talking electricians and plumbers mm-hmm. and um, carpenters. So these individuals are not going to get a college degree, diving into a trade job and doing very, very well in comparison yeah. to the college students. So, so you, you got into that, your mindset was, no college. I'm going right into a trade job. Right you know, I, I, I would love to say it was, it was like more strategic, like you're describing Sean. Yeah. I, it was like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to say I was forced to, but you know, when you are out on your own, you got to figure out how to make money. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like as simple as that, but I will, I will say, I saw something on social media the other day and it had, you know, side by side picture. It was one person who held the sign. It says, you know, I got my college degree and I don't want to be, you know, too harsh here, but you know, I yep. got my liberal arts college degree and I'm in $40,000 in debt and I yep. have no job prospects. And then the other side was a person said, I went to trade school, mm-hmm. I work in, you know, whatever the trade was and I make a hundred thousand dollars a year and I have no debt. Right. And it really appeared to me, I go, you know, this is, there's a story here and you're right. There's a shortage and we see that in our own development projects that, 
you know, lack of labor supply for subcontractors yeah. is, a, is a, an ongoing issue. And, you know, in, in the United States, you know, we're in the story of there's a lot of older, you know, contractor folks that mm -hmm. are retiring and there's nobody who's coming up after them, or at least a lot less, we'd say. And there's a real story about that. Unless you're going to go to college and, and produce a major that produces a career that is going to outrun right. the cost of what you expended to get that college degree, you shouldn't do it. Uh, in fact, there was a little side note. Somebody, it was like a 60-minute style program. And mm -hmm. in veterinarian school, they started uh, one veterinary school started a class of the business logic and the business, you know, prospects of, of veterinarians. And what they figured out in the class, a lot of the students was like, I can't make enough money in my career to pay for all the, the costs of right. going to veterinary school. So they actually stopped the class. Like they didn't hold any more. Interesting. And I was like, oh, you know, we really need that more in college yep. to your point of like, there may be stories and I think it's going to become more and more, um, where you don't need a college degree. Maybe it's, maybe it's trade school, maybe it's programming. Mm -hmm. I know there's, you know, programs where people can go straight into computer, you know, like boot yep. camp, you know, coding yeah. boot camp, and you can come out. I can't remember the stats, but it was like a hundred to $150,000 a year. And you yep. were in this boot camp for, I don't know, six months. I can't remember the, all the details about it, but I was like, you know, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, now I ultimately did go to get a college degree. Like I felt oh, you that did. was okay. needed to get, uh, to, to be ultimately get out of the trades, get a college degree and then launch into my professional real estate development career. Like Got that it. was to me at the time. And this was, you know, mid nineties or really early nineties when I made that decision, late eighties, sure. early nineties. Sure. What did you go to school for specifically? So, yeah, so I, I determined, so after this sort of like reading the book and, you know, observing the world and working in the trades for a couple of years, mm -hmm. Like I made the decision that I needed to go work in the professional development, real estate development, you know, career space yep. in order to do that. I needed a college degree. And so in, in my uh, background from my dad and my uncle, particularly my uncle, Mike, he's like real estate development is all about the, the, the capital stack. I mean, he didn't call it at that time, but he mm -hmm. called the financial structure, raising capital, you know, how do the numbers work? How does money flow through the deal? And so I picked, I uh, went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, got a business degree and focused on finance. That was my specialization was, you know, they call it financial management, but not in the sense of, you know, like, you know, financial advisor, but, you know, managing money and the flow of money and that yeah. kind of thing. That was the closest that was available. Um, and fortunately today, a lot more schools have real estate oriented classes and even real estate mm -hmm. centers like Cal Poly's business school now is a real estate center. At the time it was ad hoc. I had to, you know, get whatever real estate classes I could. I, I took some classes in the architecture school. I took some classes in construction sure. management. I sort of built my own like real estate minor, you know, I mean, it was nothing beyond what my regular major <laughs> class was. I just picked electives that I thought fitted best to that. But Sorry. ultimately it was focused on logic I got from, you know, people around me, my, my dad and my uncle, uh, learn the financial part of it. Mm -hmm. That's what's the heart of the deal. Good for you. You you actually went at your college path there very strategically. Like you you knew yeah. what you wanted to do, so you grabbed and selected classes that yeah. 
you knew would benefit that profession after you graduated. Yeah, and and I in you know I was very fortunate. I'll give all credit to you know people who were you know around me, my sure. you know, my family and family friends. You know, I had a family friend who was a uh, high school counselor at Huntington Beach High School here in SoCal, where it, you know is the surf team uh, coach and the counselor and. I didn't go, you know, I didn't go to his school, but he was family friend. And, you know, one day he took me aside and sort of walked me through a series of questions that sort of kicked me in the side of the head. Like, Hey, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to be a corporate guy or do you want to work for yourself? You know, do you want to be a professional or do you want to like, this is sort of in the transition from trades. Like I determined I wanted to go to college. I think I was in junior college at the time. And the answers that I gave sort of lean towards, look, I want to, I don't want to be a corporate guy. I want to work for myself. Can't remember, you know, it was like being business or not being business. But <laughs> at the end mm-hmm. of it, it was, uh, it's funny because he went to Cal Poly. He's like, okay, your answers mean go to Cal Poly. <laughs> it's like, and, and but it, it, it's, I, I sort of laugh at it, but it was really, it was one of those clarifying conversations that like don't come along very often. And I remember at the time it was very meaningful to me. And so, you know, what people can take from this is, you know, like if you're in that conversation with yourself or you're in that question or you don't have enough clarity, it's usually going to come from somebody else. I mean, we'd love to say that we're, you know, lone rangers and gosh, I thought of it all myself, but the reality is uh, actually there's a guy named Grant Grant Cardone, you know, well-known internet personality. And he Mm -hmm. says it great. He says, strangers have everything you want, everything you need. And that's so true. Now, now John Rothrock, who I mentioned, wasn't a stranger, but his thinking and his way of looking at things was new to me. Like I didn't, like I didn't ask him to do that. He just probably saw me like floundering and struggling to figure out what the heck to do. But it's like building networks of people around you that are high performers that have knowledge that's way beyond, you know, it's like the old, don't be the smartest person in the room right? Or if you are, there's something wrong. Like you yes. want to be around people that are more experienced in places that maybe you want to go to, or more importantly is that they can see things that you can't, like I call them blind spots, right? Yep. Like maybe forming a business and you go, gosh, this is a great idea. I love the idea of this. And then you go, okay, I better, you know, do my research. Well, one of the researches is to go talk to people who are in that business, if you know, in whatever way you can meet them and, and have them, like give you feedback and mm-hmm. it's harsh as hell sometimes, Sean. Yeah. It's like, it's stuff you don't want to hear. Lots of times I get people who I have built those networks. In fact, just before coming on with you today, I was mm-hmm. at a group that I study with, you know, monthly. And uh, a lot of it is just to have people make grounded assessments. Like don't do that. Now, maybe sometimes do that. That's a great idea. But a lot of times it's like, you need to be shown your blind spots. You cannot do it yourself. So maybe that would be a help to people. That, that's great advice. And, and I've learned to do that through my profession is ask for that ongoing feedback. And my, kind of my, my theory or, or my, my uh, strategy there is hear them, but you don't have to listen. You don't have to act on it. Yeah, you just hear that's right. it. Right. That's right. And, and you're right. Yeah, and, and I think the, the, the co- I totally agree with you because in fact, being entrepreneurial is going to generate a lot of uh, kickback from those who are close to you is what has been my experience, right? Friends and family who are like, oh, and maybe it's different for you and me, but you'll get the, oh, that's, that idea is crazy or somebody already thought of that. 
and I guess what I'm meaning is, is the networks I'm talking about are people that are high performers yeah. in whatever domain it is that you're trying to like grow into or move into, mm-hmm. um, but are usually high performers themselves. And they will be honest with you if you've built them the right way in the right networks, but you also like have to pick the right people to be your network, right? It's, you know, and I, you know, nothing wrong with friends and family to be, to be soundboards, but I found that in the early years of entrepreneurship, you're comfortable with those people, right? Like, you know, my, my dad and my uncle, I, you know, use those examples and both, you know, excellent Mm -hmm. developers on their own right. But ultimately, most of the best feedback that I've gotten in my career and, and in my growth of, you know, who I am, my knowledge and my capabilities as a business person have come from people that I ultimately have no connection with me ultimately in the beginning. Now you grow those networks and you, mm-hmm. and you grow those solid relationships, but you do it in a way that's like, you know, you hold people accountable, like you learn together, like the, the terminology that people might be familiar with is mastermind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's and mastermind in the in the common sense. And the person who wrote the book, you know, uh, Think and Grow Rich was, you know, a group that works together that has shared concerns like in, and, you know, in other words, I may be after my real estate development business and somebody else is after growing their plumbing business and somebody else is growing their financial services business. Mm-hmm. But we all have the common thread of like we want to grow in our knowledge and capabilities yep. and that. In fact, the diversity of, of you know, business domains is, is, is powerful because you're looking, hey, how can we work fundamentally knowledge mm-hmm. such that we can be effective in business? And I don't care what domain you're in. These are powerful ways to be in business. Um, right. And that's been so it's really you got to be very selective in your network. And that's you know, that takes that's a process. Uh, but I agree. It's both. You have to sort of take into account what people will say with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. If you don't know where, you know, what their agenda is or what their expertise is. And then also build a network of people who are very expert and like highest performers. And then once you pick that group of people, then you know that they're like, I mean, they're probably going to be kicking your ass more than you mm-hmm. would be yourself. And that's part of how you know it, right? That they're the right people. They're like, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you it's it. right or wrong because of like who I am. I just have been there, done that. You know, it's like when I advise real, you know, people want to be in real estate development and sometimes people go, well, yeah, I heard you, but I guess, gosh, I'm going to do something else. And I don't like struggle with that. Like I'm, you know, people will take Mm -hmm. the advice or not, but I go where I go with it is I go, okay, you have zero time in business and I have, you know, X time in business and not that the years is what counts, It's the acquisition of the knowledge, right? It's like, I've been through, I went through 2008. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It was like hard, right? A lot of expensive lessons learned. And so I bring that knowledge and really capability to execute. And that's my measure of whether I listen to somebody or not is do they have expertise, demonstrated expertise in that space. And in fact, now what I do, Sean, is if I have somebody I need to help me in my networks, I look for the person who's got the most highly valued accomplishments. Like, I don't want the guy who's been in there for five years. I want the person who's like, I've made this much money. I've produced this many yep. new businesses. I've sold assets that, you know, cost this and I sold them for that profit. That's really the measure, really the criterion standard that I use today. Sure. Yeah, that's good. You've got some metrics, you know, beforehand, before you start communicating and networking and building a mastermind. Group. Yeah. And it's not yeah. comfort. It's demonstrated knowledge. Yes. Right? Producing actual results 
not because I know somebody who knows somebody who's in that business. You go, yeah. oh, I met that person, but they don't have any accomplishments. They've right. not been successful. I need the people have demonstrated that expertise and knowledge. Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? You either listened to someone you know, heard a comment on the news, or tried to follow a trend. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Most people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that handled that logic for you? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you reduce risk, save money, and invest confidently. Before Ticker launched, it was backtested through the 2008 recession. Here are the surprising results. In 2008, the market dropped by 38%. Ticker was up 24%. In 2009, the market went up by 23%. Ticker was up 72%. And in 2010, the market went up by 12%. Ticker was up 96%. I then backtested Ticker from 1999 through 2019, and Ticker has proven to beat the market every year. The lowest return was 10%, and the highest return was 96%. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R.pro. Again, ticker.pro. Let's jump back here into the timeline. I want to learn how you got into real estate development on your own. So when you graduated, did you work for somebody for a few years or did you just yeah. jump right in? Um, yeah. So I, uh, again, in this, like sort of this idea of once I was like 18, 19 and, and I knew I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to like, like I sort of knew what the ambition was, which was to ultimately work for myself as a real estate developer. Yep. It allowed me to then map out the series of steps. So, you know, college degree, like we talked about. And then what I was in the story was I needed to work for other people professionally, mm -hmm. um, which the college degree is what the, my entry that ticket was. the ticket in. Yep. Right, ticket in. And then I needed to work for p other people. And in fact, my dad uh, introduced me to a guy named Mike Costa, who runs a, a company called High Ridge Costa. And at the time, he ran a division of Kaufman Road, the big you know home building company. It's now called KB Home. But he ran a division for that company that was a syndicator and developer of apartment buildings. Got it. And I had met, you know, was introduced to Mike through my dad, and I knew Mike's, you know, what he'd accomplished, and he had a track record in, in, you know, in the business. And he just formed this new division. So clearly, there was an opportunity, and I spent about a year pursuing Mike to get the job. Interviewed several times, kept, you know, calling him once a, a month. Hey, I'm checking in. They weren't ready for me in the beginning because I was junior. Um, but then yeah. I got into it. And what I didn't know was that Mike had this philosophy about how to be a project manager in real estate development that took the person's responsibility as a project manager was for every part of the entire life cycle of a real estate deal, you know, from identify the business plan to find the land asset, you know, design it, finance it, build it, rent it, you know, and they held their properties for long term. So yep. we didn't sell anything, but it went into asset management. And that turned out to be totally, utterly uncommon in the marketplace where your normal real estate developer would be, okay, you're the land act person. That's all you ever do. You're the construction manager. That's all you ever do. And there's a little bit of crossover when go yeah. from one stage, to the next stage, a little overlap there. Um, but Mike's philosophy was cradle the grave, right? Like you're in fact, ultimately after I became a senior PM, 
I pretty much was given carte blanche to go find deals. Like they go, you know how to underwrite them, you know what the criteria is for a successful deal and how it competes. And we happen to do affordable housing, mm-hmm. uh, tax credit finance property. So it was a very specific type of development. Um, but I was given, you know, more or less, you know, the capability to go find and create my own opportunities. Um, you know, now they still gave me, hey, you got to take this project that we found and manage that. But I was given the, the capability and the latitude to do that. And so by the time I left there after, you know, about four years, um, yep. I was fully capable as a, as a technician to be able to know all the phases of a project how to do the entire thing, how to manage it all, the little, you know, myriad, you know, mm-hmm. uh, little friction points, you know, we're, we're in the process of developing, you know, land. So you got governmental approvals and financing, all those kind of things. Um, and then, so that was sort of, then I went to work for another company to get some different market exposure for about a year. I worked for a company that did just luxury multifamily and worked there. And then I went out on my own at 32. Uh, and so that sort of brings me to now, you know, what is the Urban Pacific Group of Companies, which is the you know, company I founded and, and run this entire now 20 years, 20 years in March, Sean. Nice. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank so you. before we really dive into your business a little bit, you know, just to hit pause here, I've talked to a few people in real estate, you know, some mm-hmm. are focused on residential you know, real estate investing where, you, you know, very, it's more simplified compared to your business model, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you buy a property, you rent it out to somebody, you make residual income. Yeah. You do that in single family or multifamily. Mm-hmm. Commercial side, you rent it out to a corporation, right? So you're making the residuals there. So I think the easiest place to start, correct me if I'm wrong, is let's break down the phases. You kind of went through them a little bit, but could yeah. you break down the phases of a real estate developer? What are they doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And in fact, that's a common question that people, they say, what does a real estate developer do? I know it's like projects and right. so, you know, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do these phases, Sean, but I, I would encourage people that almost every t- other type of real estate that you described is mm-hmm. in that, in this, you know, set of steps that, that one would take. Yep. In other words, so in the beginning, you set a strategy, like what product type are we going to do? Where do we want to do it? You know, is it apartments? Is it commercial? Is it industrial? Mm-hmm. Right. We have to do that. Also, the difference is for us as a real estate developer, we get to create that new. So if you're acquiring, uh, a, you know, value add apartment assets, like let's use this one. This is a common comparison between development yes. and, and acquisition of you're saying, hey, I want to be in Chattanooga and I want to buy properties that are 100 plus units. They got to be distressed. They're going to be this debt discount of the market. Well, there's all there's going to be, you know, limited universe of available properties at any given time. In fact, that's a big part of, you know, doing good value add, mm-hmm. you know, business planning is getting off market deals at a discount. There's a whole, you know, set of tactics and strategies around that. For us, we're going to create the business plan just as any other, you know, value add investor would. But now instead of going to find apartment buildings, we're going to go find land, right? We're going to find empty land. Maybe it's underutilized. And for us, we travel mostly in the urban environment, right? Think cities and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, suburbs around cities. So usually we're going to be in neighborhoods that are, you know, built out. We're looking for underutilized, you know, small junky house on a big lot with the right zoning would be, you know, one of the stories we're in. 
So we've, you know, set the strategy, we'll go find land to develop that's, you know, fits that criteria of our strategy. And then basically a big part of being a real estate developer is you have to get the land approved, your design plus the land approved for that use. So let's say you find a piece of land that will allow commercial office to go on it, but you go, oh, I want to build apartments on that. But the city says, no, the zoning doesn't Mm. allow that. So we have to change the zoning. Now there's numerous different like ways to, to do entitlements is what we call that, which is entitling the project for the use that you want. Um, but when you hear developers are going to city council and they got approval or they got denied or they're going to planning commission, that's what that is, right? You yep. go, you're asking the city to, you know, to confirm or approve your project for the use. And there's, all, you know, you can rezone, you can do site plan review. There's many different names and they all have different, like, you know, different uh, processes and each city yep. even they may be one city's rezone is different than another city's and even the zoning criteria you know r r3 mm-hmm. in one city is different than r3 in the next city so every city or every site that we work on that's in a different city you have a you know a lot of similarities in the zoning process but a lot of differences and so a lot of what we have to do is to figure out how to work our way through that and it's the governmental process right it's you gotta you're going to the city to ask permission right mm-hmm. so you get good at that you get good at the entitlement process but also you may go hey look i'm only going to find sites that really exactly meet the criteria for the project i want to do what we call by right and then i don't have to ask for permission i can just go straight into pl- plan check right so you find the land you get the you get the plans drawn up and that's the other part of it is design so it's you find land you design your project, meaning you hire architect, you lay yes. the buildings out on the site that works and fits with your business plan. You like ours are townhouse rental units. So we designed, you know, just looked at a project this morning. We're doing, you know, 85 units on a piece of ground in El Monte, California, right? We lay that product out. We make sure we can fit the right number of units. Uh, then usually at the, about the same time, we're running a pro forma. Mm-hmm. Right. So I go, I got 85 units in two phases. This is what it costs to build it. This is what I can rent it for. This is what the land costs me. This is the time it takes to do all that. I value it at the end. Right. I got a perm loan. And then that tells me the project is viable or not from a financial standpoint. Right. Right. If all that works and we get our governmental approvals if needed, then we can close land. Mm-hmm. And usually we set up our contracts to not have to be obligated to close land until we know all those questions are answered successfully. Um, we don't take the risk of that political process mm-hmm. before we buy the land. Cause you can buy land and then the city council says no. And people do that, right? There's a business, you know, philosophy around taking yep. that entitlement risk, but we, we don't. Not yeah. And then you're, then you're stuck with the land and you, then you're stuck you with the land. You, know, you go, oh, I got a piece of land. I can't build what my business plan is. And right. you know, sometimes people are able to buy it at such a discount that that's okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, from a professional execution standpoint as a developer, you just go like, I can't take that risk. There's right. a, a lot of other risks that I take by the way. And so it's, you know, really at the end of the day, development becomes a series of risk mitigation moves. So at the end of the day, you've got a cleanly executed project that makes money. Right. And the less right. complexity you have and the more risk mitigation that you do in the front end, particularly in the choices that you make of underwriting, do I set this rent or that mm-hmm. rent? Do I pick this land or that land? Do I say this city is better than that city? Is our five bedroom townhouse better than a one bedroom unit? Right. If we pick that, mm-hmm. is it going to be better? Right. So 
really hundreds of choices that we make in the beginning um, to make sure that we are going to have the cleanest execution, the best chance of success, right? And I'm sorry to interrupt you here. I'm sure yeah. going into a particular plot of land based on the the population or the city or the neighborhood, you have an idea of what kind of property would be best for that. So you're already probably thinking, Adam. Yeah. And that, that's part of the, like, when you think about the strategy at the very beginning, you can like put all those variables together and then right. choose a product that you think is best to fit that particular criteria. So like, as an example, we, rent our units to middle income working class families mm -hmm. that make, let's say between 80 and 150,000 a year in Southern California. Right. Yep. And now we happen to be offering a specialized product to them, but we already knew up front that we wanted to serve like this middle income housing demographic because it's so undersupplied and really nobody's competing in that space that that was a place for us to go. Like think of it like a niche or a contrarian play. We're mm -hmm. trying to identify markets that are undersupplied and have low competition fundamentally, right? Which, yep. you know, when you think about it, Sean, it's like any business you would want low competition and high demand, right? Absolutely. You know, but it's interesting because when you're an entrepreneur, like the thing I say for entrepreneurs, they're self-selected optimists, right? You have to be optimistic to be able to sustain through the butt kicking that you're going to get being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And you have to believe in yourself enough but part of like this blind spot that I talked about is that optimism can work against you where you're making aggressive decisions and you're going, gosh, it's really risky, but I can do it. In fact, I, I, the joke I make is when I was a young project manager. In fact, when I worked for Mike and Kaufman Broad, that guy said, there's no deal I can't do. I, I'm a great problem solver. I can find the hairiest deal. I mean, I literally say these words, but my idea was like, hey, there's no deal that, that can't have some solution put to it and sure. make it you know, successful. But the reality is, if it has so much hair on it that takes that much problem solving, then there's just a higher inherent like probability that there's going to be some breakdown in the chain of all these yes. decisions and, and you know, all this time that goes through. And so now my philosophy is the opposite. Let's take, let's find the easiest site. So I don't want to do zoning. I want to do already zoned. Yes. I don't want to be out in the periphery, out in the boonies. I want to be right in the middle of the city right? Where I know there's population, like mm -hmm. you said, demographics, jobs, right? Demand characteristics, those kind of things. And it's interesting because, you know, when, and you know, anybody who becomes an, an entrepreneur in real estate and real estate development, you're after trying to do things, you know, you're, you're I'm going to get it done. I want to do business. I'm excited to do this. And that's where you really have to have people around you, be it mentors, maybe mm -hmm. people that you partner with, maybe it's people you even hire and you go, Hey, look, dude, tell me I'm wrong. Like I even tell, right. it's my joke with the subs that we work with in our construction teams. I go, hey, take my plans and I go tear them to shreds. Tell me what's wrong here. Tell me sure. what we're doing wrong. Good. Um, I want to know. In fact, I have to, one, one person particularly that we do a lot of work with, I think he's a little afraid to tell me, hey, that's wrong. Like, you know, he doesn't want to disturb the relationship. And I, I go, no, dude, really. Like, tell me, like uh -huh. my architect's doing a bad job. Punch some I mean, holes in this not insulting the person, but you know, it's like, I, I am not served by having somebody tell me yes, when something's wrong, including right. myself, by the way, right. Most yep. importantly, myself. And so that underwriting in the early phase of somebody's entrepreneurial career really has to be tempered with seasoned people in your networks who mm -hmm. go, 
yeah, dude, I know you want to take on that site that has a, a you know, underground gas tank and, you know, you think you can clean it up better than the next guy, but just don't. <laughs> right? right. Like that's one of my fundamental rules. No environmental sites. Like I'm, you know, I'm sure you've on it. got a checklist of red flags. Yeah. The, 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 the your quick story. So I worked on a site in a city called Montebello and the buying land from this nice older lady it was her husband passed away it was her and her daughter and they're nicest people and they go scott we just need literally 5k hard money day one on the contract like you you sign the contract and give them a check for 5k right there right mm -hmm. we went out and we did environmental testing you know like you drill the dirt to see if sure. there's oil and gas in it and they went down 100 feet i mean literally like in an hour and they said yeah we hit uh, a, a layer, uh, we hit the water and there's, you know, gasoline and, and what they call VOCs, which is volatile organic compounds. And uh, it was done right there. And I, I, so my joke is that's the fastest money I ever lost because these nice, this nice old lady wanted 5k and I go, Oh, how, how, you know, so great learning lesson, but those are the kind of sure. things that, you know, I didn't know, right. Like I could run into that problem so quickly. I mean, I yep. did the testing that tells you there's the issue, but then no one to counsel me to go, yeah, don't give them the, you know, tell them five days or 10 days or whatever, mm. or Hey, let's get the drilling rig out there and then really find it. So as an example, now we do a phase one, uh, right out of the gate. Like we, we do a contract, no hard money day one ever anymore. <laughs> we learned that lesson. We'll do a phase one environmental report, which tells us, yeah, the site has issues or not. And if there's even any little inkling of like gasoline tanks or, hey, there's the gas station was next door and could have leaked onto your site, I'm out. Yep. Like I just don't even. Don't even mess with it. I don't even spend a second thinking about yeah. it anymore, Sean. So anyways. I want to jump back to you were really stepping us through the different steps along the way. Right. And I think we ended at, you know, you get approval mm -hmm. and now is it time to execute construction? Is that the next step? Yeah, right. So, okay. so you get approval, like entitlements, like your planning commission approval, yep. you close the land. And then a lot of times you go into your actual construction drawing production. So that's the architects really now drawing the plans that build the building. That's what your subs and your general, if you use a general is going to build from go through the plan check process. So that's not discretionary. So planning commission rezoning says yes or no at their mm -hmm. discretion, political plan check is just, Hey, building code, you know, do you have the right sprinklers and you know, the right kind of materials sure. that's just code stuff, not discretionary. I mean, you got to meet the code, but mm -hmm. so you produce your plans, then you'll go to bid, right? You get all your bids, you work out your scopes of work, get your pricing, you put your budget together, you get your construction loan lined up, you know, mm -hmm. construction letters starts to look at your performa, you know, you get all ready. And then usually what we do is we'll close the land, close the construction loan and start construction all in one period of time. Meaning yep. we, we push risk out into the future as far as possible. So if something bad happens, you know, let's say our costs come in, you know, we're hundred percent above our pro forma. Mm -hmm. I can still step out of the contract. Right now, I'm probably gave the seller some non-refundable money at that point in time, right? In the land contract, but better to give them 50 or 100 or 150K and not do the deal because it doesn't make sense anymore because costs have gone up sure. so far. Now, that doesn't happen to us because we're in the market regularly, right? Mm -hmm. Historically, we know cost, um, but you, know, you never know. And so we, what we do is we give ourselves the option always 
to step out of the deal with no further obligation to buy the land or we give them a certain amount of money that we've assessed like, hey, I can give them the 100K non-refundable, I'll live, right? Close your land, start construction. Then like you said, you build it. Now you're running a construction operation, building a brand new building, right? Then you finish, finish the building, get your certificate of occupancy or CFO, we call it for short. Then you lease up your units. Let's say this is multifamily, new construction like we do. Yep. Now you're going to lease up your units and then you get to stabilize operations, right? Now you've leased all your units. You're just, you know, collecting rents and paying operating expenses and managing the property. And then you probably fund your permanent loan if you're going to hold it long-term or that would be at the time you sell it. Got it. Is your objective to, you know, develop, build, and then sell it outright? We do both. Yeah. So there's a couple different answers. So that first build, rent, sell mm-hmm. is a merchant built model. In other words, there's people out there that all they do is they just produce new apartment projects and they sell them when they're done and they're out. They don't hold anything like a company called AG Spanos, big, one of the biggest multifamily developers in the United States. That's their yep. model, right? They, they don't hold anything. And they, do they have holdings? Of course, but their main offer, their core offer is to merchant build. At least that, it's been that way traditionally. So we, we had that also, um, and that was true up to about three and a half, four years ago as we moved into doing our workforce housing specialty product, the urban townhouse stuff that we've talked about. Yep. Um, we identified that this is a market that was so undersupplied and had such long-term growth characteristics that we said, like, we want to be in that market. Like, it's got, you know, in our estimate, decades of, you know, you know, good, good, you know, demographics and, and that kind of thing ahead of us, but also, you know, the idea of, of having, you know, long-term income producing properties. And yes. although we're apartment guys and you go, well, that isn't that what that is selling the property when you merchant build it is not long-term income generating. Correct. Yeah. You produce the profits and you pay back the lender and you put a big chunk of money in your bank account. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But I'm really where I'm at in our, my arc of my personal career and also the life cycle of this company, I now want to build a portfolio of these workforce housing projects, you know, predominantly in California, although we'll look at other yep. markets that we just basically own long-term. And then the last part of it is really two years ago is when we converted to really what I call long-term hold. Really, we build it, we rent it, and then we hold it long-term. That's the other model, right? Yep. Two years ago, we started to go, gosh, man, this, this economic cycle has gone a long time. In fact, that was when it was started to come sure. out in the news, if you remember. Oh, we're starting to approach the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. And I remember starting to think about that and having le- learned lessons from 2008, I started to think about, look, if we, we believe in this product, so that's one, but if we hold investments for a 10-year period, let's say, and the recession comes in three years, not that I'm not affected by it or the property is not affected mm-hmm. by it, but what, one key thing is I don't have to sell in three years, I can sell in 10 years. Right. And I, as I watch properties go through 2008, you know, somebody bought in 2005, right. And they had a three-year deal. And then 2008 came, well, their investors said, Hey dude, I want to get out. Like I'm, we're done. Like I have yeah. three years. I want my money back. Well, guess what? That was the worst time ever to sell. Yeah. <laughs> and so anybody who had the patience to just like, Hey, look, we're batting down the hatches. We're going to rent these things the best we can. We're going to hopefully not over leverage on the debt structures, like, you know, too much loan payment relative to, to incomes, right? At the time of the recession, then you could sustain through that recession 
Smart. You know, you wouldn't be like, you know, you wouldn't be fat and sassy, but you, you'd survive and, and you'd, you know, you'd probably hang on to the asset. Mm-hmm. And then you look at those assets, you know, now, if you bought in 2005 and although they dropped in value in 2008, they're like two and three times more valuable today than they were in 2005. Now, that's that, you know, 15 year period, of course, and then the next 15 years won't be necessarily the same. But then you overlay that undersupply story in California. We're the most supply constrained housing market in the United States. We just politically, we just can't build enough housing. A lot of people that resist new housing projects. You put those two together, right? Like a solid performing asset on a long-term hold plus an undersupply story. That's really where we live in our product type. So we're, you know, we're all long-term hold now. Good for you. I was going to say and kind of summarize that you used to build and then sell the properties, mm-hmm. but now right. it's, it's primarily it's all long-term. long-term hold. And I'm not saying we won't ever be opportunistic, right? right? In fact, the joke I make is every property is for sale all the time. <laughs> You right. get the right price. I'm sure you. I mean, sell. yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you go to the investor, say, "Hey, we said ten years, but somebody's making just an offer. We can't with like, you know, we we can't refuse it. I mean, we got to get everybody's approval, including sure. our own, right, to do that. But, you know, like the 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 characteristics of long term hold outweigh what we see of the near term benefit of selling. You know, plus the risk mitigation. Let's take a quick commercial break. Imagine this. You've been putting away money for years, if not decades, with the hopes to retire someday. But at the average rate of 6%, you realize you have to work another 5 to 10 years longer than expected. Not fun. Since the 1980s, more than double the Americans have to work past the age of 65 and well into their 70s until they can retire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be working well into my 70s. I want to enjoy more freedom, the freedom to spend more time with my family the freedom to travel, and the freedom to pick up new hobbies. In fact, I want to retire early if possible, and I think most of you would agree. The problem is a 6% return just doesn't cut it. However, did you know a 15% return can nearly cut your retirement timeline in half? But how do you make more than 15% of the market? Introducing Ticker, a platform that finds low-risk stocks that generate, on average, between 15 and 50% in the market. No joke. Ticker has proven to beat the market every year for 20 years. The lowest annual return was 10% and the highest annual return was 96%. Don't wait to think about your retirement. The last thing you want is to reach age 65 and realize you have to work another 10 years before you can retire. That is unfortunately a reality for a lot of people. Get started today with a free trial. No credit card required. Visit ticker.pro. Your, your actual uh, projects, how many families or how many units are they typically? So in the beginning of the UTH, so UTH is Urban Townhouse. This is a three-story townhouse product that has five bedrooms and four bathrooms, two-car garage on the ground floor. So it. it's different than your typical apartments, which would be stacked flats, you know, first, second, yep. third floor, three families living above and below each other. This is like we, in fact, we say it's built, uh, designed and built to rent, but lives like a house, right? Yes. Sort of a unique offer in the marketplace. Um, sorry, ask your question again. I lost the thread. You know, when I talk to real estate developers and that do multifamily, I hear about some people, they'll, they'll think small, right? Like mm-hmm. a four family on a, yeah, like yeah, a hundred, like a hundred 
a yeah. hundred unit complex on a bigger plot of land. Yeah. What are, what are your projects look like? So because this UTH model, and thank you for that, because our mo- UTH model is so different, we had to do what I call a demonstration phase. In other words, mm-hmm. nobody's done five bedroom, four bath at scale. There's a few little people who do it here and there. But having learned our lessons from 2008, we just said, mm-hmm. look, if we're going to be experimenting, let's be experimenting in a way that if things go against us, we won't be, you know, like we won't be like, you know, we'll die. <laughs> you know, right. company right. will survive, right? So we actually did four small projects, like literally two to seven units, right? Okay. John, I've never done a two-unit project in my entire career. Like, I mean, we're, we're in the institutional, you know, hundred plus, you know, our last big project in Denver was 453 units, just to give you some sense of like, you know, scale. But we said like, we, this is such an experimental undertaking. Like I just like, if it blew up in my face, I go, okay, all right. You learned a lesson, but we move on. Mm-hmm. So we did those first four and, and ended up proving the model, right? You know, we can prove rents, prove construction costs, prove, produced uh, or prove values, right? So now we're into our construction or our production phase, rather. We're in our production phase. Yeah. And that's really like 15 to 100 units would be our like range and the sweet spots, probably 30 to 75 sure. of, of these five bedroom, four bath townhouse units. Uh, so that's Got the... It size of projects. And, you know, like at the end of the day, people do big projects because the efficiencies are always more, always yep. better, right? Like you have a bigger amount of units to spread fixed costs across, right? Yep. Um, you know, small projects are exceptionally ineffe- inefficient. And I've, we've seen that now, <laughs> we've done these small mm-hmm. ones, but it was a test bed, right? You just go start, start small and midsize, prove the model, you know, learn the lessons, build the practices, hire the team that, you know, vendors and internal, you know, team members that run these projects, train them on the process. And so now we're on our like sixth and seventh and eighth projects in the, in the business plan over like three years. And we're really, you know, I mean, we continue to learn lessons and we'll continuously improve practices, Mm -hmm. but we're at a point now where we have some of the smoothest executing projects that I've ever had in my entire career. And I, and I, you know, equate that, or I, I say that comes from the fact that we started really small, grew the plan, were disciplined or rigorous and how quickly yes. we took on new projects. Because in development, there's, you know, there's a real story around somebody who jumps to a really big project, but their knowledge and their teams and their practices haven't caught up with that. Yes. And those were the blind spots I was talking about. And, and I speak from experience. We, we did this in 2008, really, well, 2005, leading in 2008. Yep. We just took on some big projects that, you know, as an example, we, we didn't know how to assess general contractors well enough and vet them in a way that they would be trustworthy and, and execute cleanly um, so that we paid that price later where, right. you know, it ends up that that person didn't, they didn't know what they were doing as a general contractor well enough for this project to then take care of us in the way that we needed to be taken care of. And, you know, so you, you know, those kind of mistakes propagate, right. And that's where this knowledge and had I had somebody in my networks that knew big projects Mm -hmm. and I was asking their advice, which I didn't at the time that I said, dude, don't, don't do that. Sell that project. I mean, you produce a nice land asset and got the governmental approvals. Great. Sell that thing, right. Make a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. You don't have to build a thing. In fact, I, I will tell you that, most profitable project we've ever done. We didn't build anything. Like we just acquired land, 
got the governmental approvals that we talked about before, yep. and then sold to some other builder or developer who's had the capabilities to build a big project. Um, I've, you know, as a company, we've made more like pure profit from doing that. Sure. Um, now, you know, those projects aren't, you know, pervasively available, right? Mm. You know, otherwise, and then there's people that make a living out of doing just that land development, you might call yes. it. Yes, yes. Entitlement yep. projects. Um, but also when you do that, you have no chance to long-term hold those, right? So, you know, it's part of the story of long-term hold is to, you know, build and, and keep them. Yeah, it, exactly. For the residual income. Um, okay. So here's a question for you and, and give context for those listening. My background is software engineering. Mm-hmm. Usually when you start a project and then launch it, you know, building a software product, let's say it's a website that produces revenue, you could do that in three months. And then in, in some cases, it can be big projects that take a year, year and a half. Right. Um, but it's, it's pretty quick to get something up and running mm-hmm. and monetized. It, from my perspective, I look at real estate development like, oh boy, this could be a real serious timeline. So when you're, you know, from beginning, you're looking at a land to the point when it starts producing revenue, what kind of timelines are we looking at? You could say easily two years. <laughs> longer in some cases I've had projects. I mean, not that we wished it to take this long, but sure. you know, the project, uh, the big 453 unit project on total, I worked on it for 10 years. Oh, wow. Right. So, and, have- and I, I'll tell you, I have a, a little, little running joke. I, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of the software guys, you know, the yes. Bill Gates of the world because <laughs> they get to build software and then sell it over and over and over again. Like what yes. a, like what a killer, you know, like business structure, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I'm not a tech guy and, and, you know, I can just observe, but, you know, I, I equate being a real estate developer more similar to making movies like big block, you know, for big, sure. you know, major production studio level movies where you have to, you know, find a script, collect actors, raise the money, you know, hire a director, uh, you're testing the story and the shooting along the day on the way, but ultimately you don't know if you're going to make money until you put that thing out on the market and you are a hundred million in. Yes. Exactly. That's what real estate development is. It's like you could be a hundred million in and you know, like not really know. Now I will say that like good movie makers who know good stories and they know that they have the right teams and they have their own judgment about mm-hmm. what could be successful or not. You know, think of Steven Spielberg's of the world or, or you yeah. know, um, you know, who uh, I can't think of any other names, but, you know, the J.J. <laughs> Abrams. Right? Yeah, right. Oh, those kind of guys. Right. Um, they have a sense of like what could be successful. And they'll and I, I bet you if you asked them, they would say, you know, they get 100 scripts a year or whatever, a thousand a year. Yep. And they only pick one or two because they've gone through a similar process to what I described where you're doing all those different mm-hmm. little decision metrics along the way. And you go, Oh, I, want, I don't want to do suburban. I want to do urban. I don't want to do rural. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do one bedrooms. I want to do five bedrooms. Um, that at the end of the day, they, that the, the, you know, narrowing of opportunities yeah. makes for like what's left is really strong, right? Yeah. Like they weed out the book BS, like real early. For oh, sure. that's a bad script. I don't like that director or whatever. Right. This would probably be more from the movie producer, you know, the money guys in the, in that. Yes. And so when you do then launch your least likelihood, you know, to, to like be relatively successful again, it's a, it's like a, it's a, 
how can I put it? It's not that it's a huge success or a huge failure, but it is what's the likelihood of, you know, of, you know, some success versus big success. And you mm-hmm. sort of make the bet, Hey, look, I think I could, you know, put this out on the domestic market, like talking movies again, but I know if I take it overseas, I can make, I generally make my money mm-hmm. back. And then anything I make domestically is gravy. I mean, those are the kind of business decisions that those guys make. And it's the same for us, right? Like we have, higher confidence level after weeding these out and picking this market versus that market, right? Where, you know, use my early example of somebody who's, who's an early, you know, not been seasoned, they go, Oh, I can buy this, you know, this toxic, you know, site very cheaply, but they don't realize what it takes to clean the site is way more than what the thing's worth at the end of the day. Right. But movie production, you know, movie making to me is very similar, like big, huge bet, um, maybe opening restaurants would be a similar thing, mm-hmm. you know, and the best restaurant people are very successful and everybody else is a failure. Yeah. <laughs> I think the yeah. same with movie making and developments that way. Right. It, it really is. So, yep. You hit it out of the park and I'm, I'm a big movie nerd and I, I study the, what goes on behind the scenes intensely. So I love your. Yeah. So this, like you, this, and, and so I, I asked the yeah. question, does that sound from what you know more about it than I do? Is this sound like correct? My, like it, my analogy. It is, of it? it is spot on because there's yeah. so many nuances below the surface that people are not thinking about that can just tank a project or it cause you to lose a ton of money. Yeah. Um, so you're and right. You don't and, see it, right? Like people go, yeah. Oh, this thing was just, you know, made, you know, a billion dollars or whatever, or, uh, or it failed and I never saw it. And you go, what makes the difference between those two? Now, those are radically different, you know, yep. you have full failure versus full hyper success. But then there's the guys who are hitting the singles and the doubles and the movie making yep. business that are just, you know, very, have made a lot of money and are very wealthy, but you maybe you've never even heard of them. Yeah. Right? And they're it, not it, making exactly. a billion dollar blockbuster, but they made a lot of money. There's there's so many little check boxes to go through, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the movie industry, with, you know, I imagine in real estate development, my world is stock investing. And, and if you're ticking off those boxes, like check, 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 it, it's like you're, you're honing in that laser sight, getting yeah. more and more focused. So your probability of making a return is just significantly increased. And a lot of people don't see those nuances on the surface like well that's right and i you know we could use warren buffett as an example i mean yeah. talk about stock investing obviously has that background and and, mm-hmm. and but but if you think about his selection of companies that he buys right like yeah. i look really buffett is more of a i mean he's successful in the stock investing world but really he's a buyer of companies right yeah think about it in that way and he's got this you know, and I've, you know, you've read the books, I've read the books, but he's got this criterion standard of, for companies, you know, it's got to go have good management. It's got to have a moat business. Four M's. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the, those are all like ways that you can, you know, like apply to any business. In fact, I call that fundamental yeah. knowledge, right? If you think about picking a defensible marketplace or idea, right. Yes. Not doing what everybody else is doing. Um, you know, having good networks around you, picking the right, opportunities, you know, being very, very picky about it, right? Like if you look at it at the end of the day, whether it's picking stocks or buying companies or put, picking scripts and movies and directors or picking real estate, you know, land yep. deals. And those are all like, you have to be very rigorous about like having yes. criteria and standards that are built to be successful. Right. And a lot of it is the weeding out process isn't necessarily fun. Right. No, like, you know, not. it's, it's like you, like in particular, this is why I go back to the young entrepreneur example, because you're so eager to do a deal that you'll do any deal. 
because you're just, you want to do any deal. You just want to yeah. get going, right? And that's a bad tendency, <laughs> we'll tell you. you for sure. And in, in your model, and I know you dropped this line, and I don't use it often, but it's your industry is not for the faint of heart. It, it, Amen. You got to be so patient because from looking at a plot of land to the time when it's going to be monetized, oh boy, that's a long timeline you're yeah. looking at. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot can go wrong. In fact, yeah. we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to deal with time, right? Like yes. Decisions now for what, like what's going to look like in two years and, you yeah. know, we're like not any, you know, we have no crystal ball any better than anybody mm-hmm. else. Um, but we do, you know, we have tools that we use and people that we listen to and, you know, the economic cycle tracking and that kind of thing. And that, you know, that's important for any business. Um, but it's, I, I think there just comes with a set of practices. Practices are actions, named mm-hmm. actions. Hey, I do, you know, I do this market research. I, I, you know, only work with these networks, right? Like these are things that you do over and over again that if you looked at the best movie makers and the best company buyers and the mm-hmm. best, you know, real estate developers, they have these sets of practices that put, put them into a relatively rigorous set of choices. Yep. Right. And, and that's, I think what you, what you said, you don't see that. That's what you don't see. Right. It's like, what, how many bad scripts did I look at? Thousands. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're all, you know, a lot of them were just total dog meat. Right. Yep. But then that one that I saw, but part of it is, by the way, if you didn't read those, if you didn't review and know how to review mm-hmm. scripts and looked at thousands of bad ones, you don't know what the good one looks like. Yep. In fact, I, I had a guy I was advising. He wanted to get into the real estate investment space. We sort of traded. He did marketing and web design, sort of traded some time to, to learn. And my instructions to him in the beginning, I said, you know, I taught him some basics about, you know, real estate investing, buying apartment buildings. And I said, now I want you to go out and I want you to find a hundred projects, a hundred, you know, opportunities that are for sale in the marketplace, apartment buildings that are for sale. And I go, you're not going to buy any of them, but what you're going to do is you're going to go underwrite each one of them. You're going to build a pro forma. You're going to assess the rents. You're going to go walk it. You're going to talk to the broker. You're going to do your own market research on the population and the demographics and the job growth. And I said, purposely, you're not going to buy any of them. Right. I said, I promise you, by the time you get to the hundredth deal, you will know the market better than probably 99% of, you know, the, certainly the industry and in whatever, you know, geographic area and not, not including, you know, the high level professionals and because you will have looked at so many deals, you'll have learned all the questions to ask, right. And the process of asking all the wrong questions teaches you the right questions. And then you work with people mm-hmm. like me and you and you go, what's the right questions to ask? Right. You meet new people and you meet new people that can be powerful parts of your network. And, you know, you can apply that to any business, right? Like, you know, it's yep. uh, the going through the process of that knowledge acquisition, but yes. also understanding the marketplace. And that's the same with the real estate development. I mean, I know so much because I have literally developed in my career, probably, I don't know, you know, personally been involved in, you know, something close to 20,000 units. That's like companies I work for plus what we've done. Sure. Yep. And, you know, and like been bashed in the head, you know, thousands of times. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's really funny how you break down that story because it's very much a non-glamorous process. Whatever you want to be great at, getting there is not glamorous. And there's a ton of mistakes and there's a ton of data yeah. and a ton of nuances. Um, 
But once you get to a point when, when you start running into the same issues and you've solved them before, that's like yeah. a really good feeling. Like, oh, it I, is. I, I've been here before. Totally. In fact, I'm, uh, you know, when I said we've like had some of the best executed projects ever in my career, it's like, wow, that's so cool. The, you know, the budgets are good that we're on time. You know, I'm like not getting, you know, hammered with 8 million emails and phone calls every day to to solve problems. Like I got a good team. I've, you know, we've trained them, you know, they're training their, their folks that are on their teams. And it, it only really, you know, last probably 10 years, I would say, so, you know, post 2008. Because mm-hmm. 2008, you know, any recession and particularly, you know, for anybody who's going through, you know, we're all going through the 2020 recession. Recessions, you know, like Warren Buffett says, you know, you know who's swimming naked. Yes. Right. You know quote. who is weak in execution, who's weak in knowledge, yep. who's weak in strategy you know, these sorts of environments will expose that. And hopefully if you're the person who's being exposed, you, you, you reflect and you go, holy shit. It's like, I I I see where I didn't have it together. Mm -hmm. And then you work to get it together. And that's like all about those networks I've been, I've been talking about. So for sure. That's good. I want to ask a question here related to psychology before we get into the, the final round of the rapid fire round. Yeah. So can you share a, a time or a moment or experience that it, it was really a big challenge, mm-hmm. like a, a big problem you faced and, and what that did to your psychology and how did you overcome that? Yeah. Well, I would go back, I mean, bunch. So I, I really, you know, fundamentally go back to the 2008 to 2011 era Okay. Um, in the housing market, I mean, it was the worst downturn in the housing market generally, and that's for sale. Um, that was, you know, it affected the rental markets and developers, you know, as a developer, that time we talked about is always a real factor because if you, you know, plan for two years and, you know, you think there's a recession out, you know, three years, um, then you need to get done in two years. Cause if you go into three years or four years, then you, you mm-hmm. launch yourself into the recession, right? So there's always that time period. I think really what it, where I go with it is that, you know, in the 2008 era, basically we, we were doing a lot of condo projects. So part of our offer, we've always been an urban infill developer. We've done condo, you know, high density condo, Mm-hmm. apartment buildings, you know, affordable housing, although I would probably, you know, our apartment guys, really, if I look back on it, but we, we did a, at the time and, you know, 2004 to 2006 condo product was just, you know, just hit, hitting it, you know, market was just, you know, huge and, yep. and growing. And so we were in a lot of condo projects and, you know, 2008 came, you know, actually 2000, late 2006 came, those were the earliest signals. Yes. And I think what, the lesson I learned was that, you know, the signals for recessions and downturns are there. And in fact, I, I study with a group called the Aji Network, founded by Toby Hecht. And Toby has this great way of seeing it. And he's like, look, fundamentally, the business cycle is always there. It always goes up. It always goes down. It always goes up and down, right? And so you can count on the fact that that's always there fundamentally, what you can't know is the timing of those increases and decreases in the marketplace, right? So part of it is being vigilant. That's the distinction I use, like it's watchful, you know, not paranoid, not fatalistic, you know, oh my gosh, right. you know, the world's ending in two years, get out, right? Buy gold, right? Like all the gold guys always say that. <laughs> 
but you have to sort of be vigilant and still do business, right? Because you have right. to take risk to produce profit. You have to produce new transactions and new offers to be able to make money because you could do none, right? That would be the safest way to be protected from a recession is don't do business. But of course, if we're going to take care of our families and, right. you know, and, 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 you know, live the, the good lives that we, we all want and all seek, then you have to like take risk, right? Very fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And so I remember at the time seeing early signals of the recession, you know, and, and it's, uh, I call it signal from the noise, right? So you got a very, very noisy environment of, you know, media and, and the internet and websites and, you know, this guy on TV and that guy on TV and, you know, it's this news, that news, right? And, you know, in 2005, let's say you would have both seen a guy like Tom Barrick who was on the cover of Fortune Magazine basically saying, I'm getting out. I'm, and Tom Barrick's a, a colony capital, big real estate guy. I mean, he's a, you know, colony capital is a, you know, hedge fund, private sure. equity group, but, you know, most known for real estate, at least to me. And then at this other side, you have the Wall Street Journal with a graph with a line going like this and housing's never gone down since 1930. Fully opposing, exactly. you know, Very signals. Convenient. And, um, you know, at the time I wasn't seasoned enough to pay attention to the guys like Tom Barricker getting out. In fact, I'll share with you kept, you know, you know, in the old days, remember when you used to clip, you know, newspaper articles, yes. and, you know, magazines, you know, we don't do that anymore, but I actually have a book. It's in, it's in the office behind me of, uh, articles that I collected, you know, that were sort of post 2008, including Tom Barrick on the cover, I'm getting out as a reminder to me of that, you know, both the the good and the bad side of the of the narrative that we saw in the in the media, as a way of paying attention. Don't forget, you will see that's there, right? The yield curve yield curve went negative last year, right? And that's been a pretty consistent signal for recessions. And and what happens, and part of the way way you fight this, Sean, is that it will be oh, it's different this time. You know, 2000, remember 1999, 2000 internet companies and yep. tech companies, oh, they don't need to be profitable. You know, business, you know, economics has been suspended. You know, the internet and, and, and tech is different. They don't need to be profitable, right? And then, then we all smacked the wall in 2001, yep. right? Um, that is what happens. That's the, you know, the herd mentality. We'll say it's different this time. Um, and that happened in 2008, right? Oh, for sale, housing's been going up forever. So we start to then be better at paying attention to the signals and the noise. I talked myself into believing the stats that were positive in 2006 and seven. I ignored the signals and the noise. This is sort of the shorthand of the point I'm trying to make. Yep. And that part of the seasoning is to like watch all this stuff and try to pick out the stuff that's trustworthy and the stuff that's not. And if I go back and sort of check my like way I do it now and I sort of, you know, backtrack it back, you know, back test it, I go, Oh dude, I would have seen it. Had I just listened to Tom Barrick and, yep. you know, I mean, Tom Barrick's being, you know, he's not getting out now, but you know, you know, at the time that was a, that was a very, very clear signal. And I remember mm -hmm. seeing it and I ignored it to be quite honest with you, Sean. And, you know, shame on me. What I like doing is I like using tools like proven tools to prove the comments from people wrong. Yeah. And, and I do, there are certain people out there in the stock market. I will hear what they say, but I typically do not listen. Like yeah. I like hearing their perspective about the market and whatnot. And you get to the data. The data is usually the, that's the determining factor. You know, right. I'm not, 
here to promote ticker. Um, but um, it, it, you know, that is something that kind of cuts through the clutter. Exactly. You know, and, and I really I keep going back to trust, not to over like, you know, over talk about trust, mm-hmm. but you know, obviously you think of trust and business transaction between people, but you know, do you trust this media source? Do you trust that economist? Do you trust that government official who's, you know, doing this or doing that, right? right. Um, for your own self, like you got to, like you do, in fact, this is exactly what I do, mm-hmm. is you go, oh, I see that source. And then you go take it with a grain of salt or, yep. you know, you at least accept it. Like, hey, here's a piece of data in the market. Mm-hmm. And then you go, who's that coming from? Like yes. I, maybe it's critical thinking or research. I don't know what you call it, but you have to assess that source for yourself from a standpoint of risk mitigation and with the sort of the feeling, this is where I go into that. And I don't, you know, I don't like the term paranoia, but it's maybe like the, the other term I use staying frosty, like you're staying vigilant. In fact, that's the yes. term. Yes. You're like, I'm not sitting here thinking somebody's going to, you know, chop my arm off today, but I got to keep my eyes out on the horizon. Somebody yep. might be out there. Now somebody may be coming to, you know, you know, bring me new supplies or whatever and help mm-hmm. me. I have to see those people too. Um, but it's to, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you'll know this when I say it, ain't nobody going to do it for you. Nope. Nobody, nope. nobody will look for your business as much as you, you know, look out for your business as much as you do. Right. And you know, like, you know, there's nobody who's, you know, it's more meaningful that your business succeeds or dies than you. And so, you know, when you start to put that hat on, you know, then you go, it's up to me. And now you use networks and you find powerful people to, to, mm-hmm. you know, pair up with or to combine forces with. And that's really the, the strongest part of, you know, of, of doing that. There are people out there though, although nobody's going to take care of your business, there are people that will help you if you help them. Right? Absolutely. Powerful people with knowledge and expertise in their own networks. That's really, you know, if you sort of combine that, those two things that I'm talking about, networks plus knowledge, really the ability to see signals from the noise is really knowledge. So it's mm-hmm. networks and knowledge, that combination and sort of the philosophy that you're not able to do it on your own. No lone rangers can be no, successful. No. People working together, combined ways is always way more powerful. Two is always better than one. And, you know, when you start to put all those together, right, that's to me where I've made the most progress in my career in the last, you know, 10 years post 2008 recession has been in that domain, not even in the real estate domain. I mean, it's all applied to the real estate domain, but most of that's not real estate learning knowledge per se. I call it fundamental knowledge. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, good. Now I'd like to transition into the rapid fire round. This is, we're going to find out who Scott really is. Okay. All right. There's some fun questions. All right. If you can answer each question in 15 seconds or less, you ready? All right. Yep. All right. What's your favorite podcast? Uh, favorite podcast so far is uh, there's a guy named Michael Blanc, okay. um, who is a real estate syndication podcaster and does deals. Uh, his whole philosophy is raising, you know, doing real estate deals, raising money from others. That's been, you know, that's cool. been our business plan for several years now. Cool. All right. What is a recent book you read and would recommend? So uh, I'm a big fan of Grant Cardone. Okay. And so the book I'm reading literally right now is If You're Not First, You're Last, which is basically a sales, you know, sort of sales oriented sales training sure. book. But um, I've always enjoyed Grant's like energy and, you know, he's not for everybody from a personality standpoint, but I've gotten a lot out of, you know, 
learning with sure. you know, from him and his books. Sure. All right. What's your favorite movie? Oh, several. But if I think I would go back to it, um, I'm going to blank on the name. This is what happens when you get old, Sean. Um, <laughs> what's the uh, what's the the Vietnam movie? Uh, Martin Sheen. <laughs> Even I'm drawing a blank on that. You know, Ooh. Uh, um, yeah, that's that's back 70s or 80s. Is that correct? Yeah, right, right. Uh, yep. Oh, boy. I'll, I'll look it up. But uh, anyways, that movie. <laughs> what a lame answer. Hold, hold, nope. Hold on here. I'll... Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Apocalypse Now. How about that? All right. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, right close second after that is uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I, I did not serve in the military. Um, mm-hmm. All my uncles and my dad, um, you know, my dad and my uncle Mike were both 101st Airborne Division. My cool. uh, other uncle flew and uh, worked on helicopters in Vietnam. I don't know why that, you know, era like just resonates with me. It has since I was like earliest memories. So sure. I think that's partly why. And, and, you know, war from my understanding and again, never experiences like, you know, the most extreme of environments. Yeah. Um, so those would be two movies that I would say. Yeah. Saving Private Ryan is, will always be a classic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that beginning scene when they're getting onto the beach. I mean, it's just powerful yeah. stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite food? Uh, great question. Um, so I'm like based in California. So we have a lot of, you know, Mexican food, you know, um, places here and, uh, there's something called ceviche, Mm -hmm. which is a uh, dish that's made in, in Latin America. And basically they take fish and, you know, think like, you know, pico de gallo and fish and vegetables and they put it in lime juice and that cooks the fish and then they serve that up like it's a cold dish sort of a seafood dish it's delicious i've had it yes. yeah love it all right how many hours do you work per week you know that's a great question i i've been in a in a conversation with me i mean i easily do eight or ten in a day okay um but i also like i'm in the story in fact I, the joke i used to make is uh as an entrepreneur no days a day off and every day is a day off uh now i've moved to no days a day off <laughs> Okay. And I'm okay with it. In fact, you know, it's a, a, at home and short answer, you know, when you, when you have picked a career in a business that is challenging and that you like you're, you're endeavoring to be successful in that will sustain you through a lot of, you know, kicks in the head. And I'm not a person to like, you know, find your passion and follow it and that sure. although that's in there somewhere. Um, but I found like, I love real estate development because it's so challenging. So therefore the time I spend isn't, working you know right. that's uh, sort of cliche but you know i'm working all the time practically and okay, loving sure. it i get it yep but having fun all right how many hours do you sleep each night you know um i've always been in this story of like lo- you know loving the story of these guys that you know sleep three or four hours and i just have found my body just does not do that so i'm, I'm Thank usually you. doing seven or eight hours Good for you um, i don't um, you know, I don't have a hardcore alarm, but you know, I wake up pretty early, you know, five, five thirty-six. Sure. You know, just regularly, you know, helps to go to bed earlier, of course. Yep. Uh, but I also m- part of my learning with the group Aji network, I'm on several calls every week and we start at, you know, six in the morning on our calls, do an hour in the morning wow. to learn. So that gets me up also. Good for you. I'm, I'm glad you recognize that because a lot of people uh, underestimate the power of sleep and what it oh, does dude. on your decision-making, your thought process, your efficiency. 
yeah. anybody who has kids, you know, that sleep deprivation is phenomenally like, you know, Oof. tough. Right. And, you know, my first didn't sleep and, you know, my wife and I traded, but just mm-hmm. like the, 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 you know, the, what happens to you when that, that, that goes on, it's just insane. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Next question here. What is your workout regimen? So great question. So I actually, I work out two, two times a week with a personal trainer. Okay. It's all around weightlifting. Um, so I'm 53. So, you know, really in the story of that, you know, post 40 year old era physically of, mm-hmm. um, you know, just naturally losing muscle mass that happens just as a natural, you yep. know, like part of, you know, growing old. Um, so I'm all about, uh, you know, lifting weights and, you know, I'm not super crazy about it, but, you know, we're definitely after, you know, building, rebuilding muscle mass. In fact, I'm in better shape now at 53 than I was when I was, you know, 20 to 25, just to, from the process of lifting weights. Good for you. And then I throw a little bit of jump rope in there. And then, you know, one of the big ones that I, that I sort of cycle back and forth is I'll do an hour, like I, it's a walk in the morning, but it's really a hike, you know, I'll do three, three and a half, four miles in an hour, wow. um, you know, just to, you know, get the blood flowing. And uh, I'm a real firm believer in getting outside, right? Seeing trees in the sky, like your yep. body and your brain, I think are benefited from just being outside. And, you know, your brain needs nature, your brain needs trees and air and sunlight and mm-hmm. blue sky or whatever, right? Um, so in addition to the physical movement, um, you know, the, the getting outside in nature, I think has a impact on your physiology, right. From seeing and observing nature. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. Good advice. All right. Last question here. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit? and What would you say? So I, I always have been a, in a story that I was never in a huge hurry. Like I, I started, you know, I worked in the trades. I started college later and I never really, you know, I, maybe I justified it to some degree. Uh, but I would probably go back to my just, you know, graduated high school self. And really two things I would give advice is one is you don't have forever. Time is limited, right? If you look at the math, right? Yep. You know, we probably have 10,000 working days in our career. Um, and, you know, to, to be vigilant about time, but also to, uh, to be in, in, how can I put this to, to think about working with others as a more powerful way to be than try to be Lone Ranger. Those would be right. the two advice that I give. Cause I, you know, it's like, I've always been a story about, oh, I, I can do it myself. I can learn, I'll learn it. And, you know, there's a certain amount of that that is, you know, you need naturally to, to be expert in your space. Um, but I used to apply that to everything. And now I'm like, I don't want to learn how to do that. I mean, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I go, there's somebody out there in the world who knows this domain or what I need to do way better than I do. And it's more effective to work and pair up with them. You know, Mm -hmm. you'll accelerate, you'll amplify and accelerate your career and your business growth so much more rather than trying to be Lone Ranger. Lone Ranger is super weak. Right. Great advice. That's awesome. All right. I'll hand it over to you. Where can people reach you? So I would encourage people to go to our website, www.urbanpacific.com. Um, on any page, there's a red button that says sign up, uh, click that button and that'll uh, bring you to our e-blast, um, which we put out every Saturday. Um, send me an email at choppin at urbanpacific.com, uh, C-H-O-P-P-I-N at urbanpacific.com. 
and we'd be ha happy to uh, share with you our uh, ebook. It's called How to Thrive and Survive a Recession, which is very timely in this day and age. Mm -hmm. Not real estate centric per se, but really about the entrepreneurial journey through a recession, which you know I think uh, probably a, a few people are in that story right now, and this can be a, a source of you know like support in the environment, but also, you know, practical ways of things to do, how to survive and, and, and regrow your business with the, you know, with the goal to thrive sure. eventually. Awesome. This has been great, Scott. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Sean. So glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Thanks for listening to the Payback Time Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please provide a review on iTunes. If you'd like to hear an interview from someone specific, please make a comment on the Payback Time Facebook page. If you're interested in becoming an affiliate and earning 30% reoccurring commission for simply sharing Ticker, visit ticker.pro slash affiliates. Remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stock mentioned on this podcast, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is copyright protected by Payback Time. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Don't believe in any luck, I believe I'm self-made, yeah.